Welcome, uh, Noble Warriors fans. This is Mike Young with Noble Warriors, and we are getting ready to launch into episode 12 of the Noble Man podcast. And our topic today is the Noble Man Knows Some Facts About God's Word. I'm pretty excited about this because I love the Word. I find myself, as I read the Bible and engage it every day, I'm thinking, my goodness, God, you speak to me so regularly, so fluently, so contemporarily through your word. I mean, this morning I was reading Psalm 69, and it just fit what's going on in my life. And I'm so thankful that uh, God's word is it meets us right where we are. Um, but there, there's so many guys, myself included, who want to understand more of the word and have questions about it. Where did it come from? How do we use it? Um, can we trust it? And so I'm excited to have Daniel Stevens, Dr. Daniel Stevens with us from the Museum of the Bible uh, to talk with us about some questions we might have about the Word of God, some facts about this. So Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you got connected with the Museum of the Bible, just to introduce yourself to our crew here. All right. So I grew up in Los Angeles and I spent the majority of my life out there I started going to church and being a Christian when I was 16, so in high school. And from there, I just started studying the Bible however I could. I studied classical Greek in in college at UCLA. Initially started because I wanted to be able to read the New Testament better. I wanted to understand how it was written and to interpret it as best I could. That kind of just kept growing. And so from there, I started serving in my church during college, and that led me to go into seminary. I got a Master's of Divinity at uh, the Master's Seminary, also out in Los Angeles. Right. was there for three years um, while serving on a church staff. And then I, after I finished that, I taught Greek there at the seminary and at the college for a year. And then still wanting to, to understand the New Testament. And, and actually, I got got kind of uh, intrigued by a question that arose in teaching through the book of Hebrews at an adult Sunday school class and made that a topic for a PhD dissertation. I went off to the University of Cambridge in England to study New Testament for, for a PhD, hoping to, to kind of answer that question I had while I was, I was teaching a Bible study class. Um, wrote that, finished that, was able to teach Greek at Cambridge for two years as well. And then uh, while I was finishing that up, uh, the, the museum posted this position, and I I applied and moved out to D.C. about a year ago. That's incredible. I mean, you've got to really want to understand the New Testament to get that deep into the study of languages and go to Cambridge and teach and, and learn. It's just, uh, just an amazing story. So thank you for your quest to understand and uh, your willingness to, to be with us here. Now, I have to tell you— uh, we're going to have some guys in our mix here that probably could go toe-to-toe with you on some seminary stuff. But for the most part, we're guys who may live in the shallow end of the pool. At least I do. That's what I tell folks. And and so what we want to talk about today is how to answer some very basic questions about God's Word. Because right. I envision men like myself. I've got four kids, and uh, they're they're older now. The youngest is, is 15. But... Um, Answering questions for them about where the Bible came from and how how did you know why is it organized the way they are really challenging stuff for the guy mm. who's never been exposed to any of this and um, so we want to dive into that some now I love your whimsy too I I got connected to Daniel because I saw an episode <laughs> of a video production that the Museum of the Bible is doing during this COVID thing called the Lonesome Curator 
And so he was talking about translations of the Bible, which caught my attention and shared some really cool stuff. We'll link to that. But, um, Daniel, you might be interested in commenting. We did a one-quick-question survey about the, the version or the translation of the Bible that men in our audience use, and you can see the results right here. So why don't you talk about them and just kind of give us some insights that you might glean from, from our uh, data here. Right. Let me, let me bring up the exact numbers on, on my phone here. But I remember the, the top share was King James. Yeah, that was then surprising ESV, to me. then NIV, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so so in, in my experience, my the, the fact that the King James is the highest in terms of who has it, that, that makes sense to me. Um, it's, it has been the, the most popular version of, of the Bible, both because of historical reasons and kind of its influence on the English language, and also because some people seeing it as in some way better than, than, than other versions. Right. Um, the, the NIV is the one that has sold the most in, say, the last 20 years in America, and so that being pretty high is, isn't surprising to me either. But the fact that the ESV was second yeah. on your list tells me that that your audience has a, a large proportion of, of Reformed Baptists in it probably, and some, some people new to the Reformed tradition on as well, where, where the ESV tends to be the most popular. And I, I have ESV sets behind me, and so I, I'm kind of giving away some of some of my, what I tend to read most, um, most there as well. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I was intrigued that you made some assessments based on that data and and uh, commented on that quickly when we first talked. Now, the another issue that was intriguing to me was we did an other category and we had write-ins. We had 45 write-ins, which would end up being probably somewhere in the neighborhood of over 10 percent of our respondents said that they read the new King James version. I thought that was fascinating. I just kind of missed that. But lots of folks yeah. dive into the new King James, too. So um, so that was helpful. Now, I, I will say I got this quote from a guy who emailed me after the survey and said, I can tell you the best, all caps, version to read is the one you will read. And, man, I just want to endorse that. And um, so it, the Bible, the inspired and inherent word of God, it's transformative. And so when you read it, it will it will speak to you. And so yeah, pick I, up whichever version and start reading. I entirely agree. I, I have friends on the ESV, NIV, and uh, NRSV translation committees. And yeah. there are good people on them. They're good translations in all of them. The, the fact that it's a Bible is the most important part. Yeah. So tell me just in, in, a, in a couple of seconds here, the, the whole idea of the message or the living Bible. What's the difference between a translation and a paraphrase? Um, right. What goes with that? So um, say, say take the message. It's, it's a paraphrase Bible. So the goal isn't to tell you what every sentence is saying, what every clause is saying, but it's to take the, the main idea of certain sections, put that into modern or everyday language and, and run with that. So it's an interpretation and it's upfront about this. This isn't right. us kind of conspiratorially say this. It's upfront about this. Right. It's an interpretation meant to help people to understand the, the point of sections of scripture, but isn't giving you necessarily a, a sentence level or a word level idea of what's going on. So sometimes it's helpful to read the message to get yeah. the flavor of something in a modern sense, but then to go and read a translation, a more rigorous translation of the Bible to get the full orb of the meaning. Is that a fair statement? 
Yeah, if you're in the message, you can go on kind of the high level ideas, the ideas right. of the paragraphs, whereas you wouldn't want to zoom in on a single word that's used right. and try saying this is what the, the biblical authors are saying, because those single words are, are paraphrases, they're interpretations sure. on, on a broader scale than, say, a, you would get in normal translation. Yeah, awesome. Well, so, you know, we've, we've already talked about the Bible is um, its power, it's transformative. So what makes this book so special? You you work at the Museum of the Bible. You've taught Greek. You're, you've studied deeply the New Testament. What is so special about this book? Uh, many things. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Yeah. Um, the first to me and, and, and to all Christians is that it's from God. The, the fact that the Bible is, in a meaningful sense, the Word of God is— is something that cannot be overemphasized. So many of us go through our lives hoping that God would only speak and tell us what we need and tell us who we ought to be and tell us what we ought to do. And the fact is he has and he does. Yeah. And, and in, in this Bible, we have that. Second, and in a way that works with the first, is that while in addition to being read from God, it's also genuinely human. It is an interesting book. It is a book written in people's times and capacities, and it shows God's working in and through humanity not just in the events depicted, but also in the very process of writing. And that causes all sorts of interesting features. It's, it's a literary book. It's an interconnected book. It's a quirky book. And all of those together make so many so very interesting things about it. Well, and it's a history book, too. That comes to mind as you're talking about this, that, um, you know, we, we mark history, and it's, it's real history. It's not a storybook. We mark history with the Bible, too, correct? Yeah, we mark it, and it's, it's also from history. One thing that I think is often very important for us to remember is that the Bible wasn't written yesterday. Right. It was written in historical contexts, and it was written from a certain place, and we can know things about that, and it speaks today, but we can see it as this work of God in the past working to now. Yeah. And, and you know what? I'm going to—I hadn't planned on doing this, but I'll probably stop a couple of times here and just plug the Museum of the Bible because uh, I absolutely love that place. I've been there multiple mm. times with my family. I was there several times while it was under construction, during construction tours. And um, the way uh, the Bible is brought to life, the context, the historical record— uh, the trans translations of the Bible. Um, guys, I, I, you'll hear me mention over and over again that it is worth your time once once we get through this COVID business uh, to take your family to Washington, D.C. to experience the Museum of the Bible because you'll you'll get to see some of these uh, some of these uh, explanations that Daniel's talking about really come to life in front of you. So. Uh, that's a that's a really cool aspect of that museum. Well, tell us, uh, you've studied the New Testament in great depth, but we've got the Old Testament too. So who actually mm -hmm. wrote the Bible? Right. And so the answer to that, or the short answer to that is many people. Yeah. Uh, when we think of the Bible, we have to remember it's not just one thing. It's in fact a collection of things. It's not one book. It's a collection of books. They work together, and I believe that they tell an overarching story through their stories. But it's it's many books. And so in, in the Old Testament, many books, we're going to have many authors. And also when we think of authors, the, the normal way that we think of it is only one person writing straight through. But that's not how it worked. If we think about the Psalms, yeah. we have many that are Psalms of David, but it, the oldest one says a Psalm of Moses. Some are written after the exile. It's a period of, we'll round up and say a thousand years where multiple people are writing. And then we have people who collect the Psalms into five books 
and then those into one book. And similarly for the Proverbs, we have the Proverbs of Solomon, but then those collected by Hezekiah, and then those of Lemuel. And so just taking what the Bible says about itself, there are, are not only many authors, but many books have many authors. And that's not something that should scare us or be overly complicated. It's, it's what it says. Um, some are more straightforward, say like the, the books of the prophets, maybe just buy this prophet, okay done uh yeah. but but for others it's, it's much more complicated than that yeah so um I, I actually started reading in the last couple of days the book of amos which is um i i noticed as i read in the in the introduction of that it says that amos was not a prophet but was a shepherd and uh, um what does it say a tender of uh figs or something like that yes. i mean he's just yeah. a commoner almost and uh so he's written this book of the Bible as uh, as this, I would say, kind of a normal guy almost. Yeah, so in it he says he's, he's neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a, a shepherd and a, a fig tree tender. Yeah. Um, and the various people who wrote the scriptures from what we can tell came from all walks of life. You, you can have from all the way at the top of society kings or um, Isaiah seems to be a member of the court of the kings in Judah to shepherds out sitting next to sheep. And yeah. It, you can go from from the entire gamut between those. If we think of the New Testament as well, you have fishermen and tax collectors and tent makers and things along those lines. And I love you. You mentioned the fishermen. I love Peter because we get to see, man, the full development of Peter as a follower of Christ and then a leader in the church and then a a patriarch of the church sharing his his wisdom in the books that he wrote, First and Second Peter. And so just kind of fascinating that the subject of the Gospels, and then he shows up in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, and then in Peter's letters, and then he writes his own letters to the church. Um, I just, and, I just love all that. In addition to that, um, traditions, as very old tradition dating back to at least the second century, um, that Mark, in his Gospel, was writing kind of the notes of Peter, right. more or less, in a, in a rushed order. Uh, and so his influence there as well. Exactly. And you know what? I say this is one of my favorite things to get men to read the book of Mark, because when I when I open up a Bible and start to read the book of Mark, first chapter, I start underlining immediately. And the word immediately <laughs> is used like 11 times in Mark chapter one. And I, I had heard that same tradition. And I get the sense that Peter was always in a hurry, so much so that he got in his own way sometimes. And so I just get the sense of Mark trying to record Peter's fast moving narrative of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that word immediately just shows up over and over again. Fascinates me. Yeah, throughout, throughout the book immediately appears as kind of a transition word. And it's, it's an incredibly fast paced book. Yeah, absolutely. So, wow, we're getting into some fun stuff that I hadn't anticipated here. So um, where did the Bible come from? So uh, you had two areas that you wanted to explore there with us. So where did the Bible come from? Right. So when I hear that question, I hear two separate questions. Where did it come from in terms of where was it written and under what circumstances was it written? And then how did it get from there to us? So we could call that composition and transmission or just where and how maybe. Um, so in the initial writing, we're talking about a period of well over a thousand years for the Old and New Testament together, um, mostly for both of them in, in the land of Israel, but spread about in the Mediterranean with kind of the epistles of the New Testament. Um, and so the, the Mediterranean world broadly for that, it was written by, as we said before, 
many people, upwards of 40, many of them unnamed and that we'll never know, um, writing across years and years and years and years. But all um, under the inspiration he, of God, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. So we, we, we take this from 2 Timothy 2, 3, uh, 3.16, that all scripture is, is God-breathed. It comes from God. We, we take this from 2 Peter 2, I believe 10, that um, men, wrote, men from God wrote as the Holy Spirit carried them along. Right. Um, so, yes, I, I affirm the, the full humanity and, and the full divinity of Scripture, um, that it's from, from God and that it's from God through people writing in their styles and in their knowledge and in, in their, their historical contexts. Um, and those aren't intention, um, frankly. Um, and then how did it get to us? Well, the answer is a lot of people over time copied it out. Right. There, there were scribes through history who would – take a manuscript or have a manuscript read to them and you would copy it out and then that would go and then that would be copied and then that would be copied. Because of how historical records works and because of how things are left behind, we have a somewhat random sampling through the centuries of each of those things that were left behind and every New Testament manuscript that's known and every Old Testament manuscript that's known has been given a catalog number, has been referenced and is used uh, in, in checking the, the modern New Testaments as well. Uh, and modern Old Testaments as well. So I see, right. I, I heard it saying New Testament because that's what I know. <laughs> um, further, we also talk about the, the collection of them, how it got to us involves collection, because we tend to think of the Bible as a book bound between covers altogether. Right. But the thing is, books like that didn't really exist when, when the Bible was initially made, and whole Bible books, I don't think we have any evidence of them before the 4th century uh, AD. And so it was initially a collection of scrolls put together that would be, be stored in, in the same place more or less. Um, and then those were eventually bound together in what we would think of as book forms. And then those were transmitted to us as well. Yeah. And so, again, this is you could see that progression of the transmission of the word right there in the Museum of the Bible, in the various uh, the codex and the 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 scrolls and those various um is in some cases representations of those artifacts but in some cases the artifacts themselves yeah absolutely um if, if you go through the, the history floor of the museum uh it takes you from scrolls through codices which which is what we think of as folded books right um into kind of the medieval tradition of books into early printed books into today um yep and so god inspired the writing of the word what would you say about God's um, intervention or engagement in the transmission and the preservation of the word? I think that's a fascinating. I, I, how has it been mm -hmm. protected or covered or um, it protected from a, a complete desecration? I mean, God's God's got his hand on this. So um, here's where I think a, a healthy doctrine of providence is very helpful. Yeah. Um, in that God ensures that his ends are carried out through the means that he ordains, um, e even with and including the free and willing actions of human beings, including the mistake, the mistakes of human beings as well. Um, the reason I say that is if you were to sit down and try writing by hand Deuteronomy or the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John, you're going to make a mistake here or there. You're just, you're just going to because you are a human and writing that many letters with perfect accuracy is very, very hard. Right. Um, so when we talk about kind of God's preserving the scripture or God um, providentially making sure that scriptures are available, it doesn't mean that you can't make a mistake when you're writing down a, a copy because that's 
obviously untrue. Uh, however, we can trust, first of all, and this is a logical position, we can trust that God ensures that what he wants to be known will be known and the words he wants to be known will be known. Um, if we look into the actual details of the preservation of the Old and New Testaments, um, we have, as it were, in the opposite stories. Uh, for the Old Testament, what we have evidence of, especially in, in the Hebrew manuscript tradition, is of very faithful scribes, more or less, up until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the, the earliest Old Testament Hebrew manuscripts we had were 10th and 11th century. So AD, so well over a thousand years after yeah. even the most recent book was written. Um, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, that was taken back to first or second century um, BC. So an extra thousand years there. Yeah. Um, and while, while as scholars, we like focusing on the little details that are different, the, the, vast, the vast majority of the letters, of the words, of, of, of what's there shows that these, these scribes copied incredibly faithfully. Not only do we have that the Hebrew tradition, but also we have what are called the ancient versions, the ancient translations uh, of the Old Testament. Um, the most common one is the, the Greek translation, right. um, often called the Septuagint for various reasons. Um, which has been preserved in the Christian manuscript tradition throughout the Middle Ages, um, but then also the Syriac translations and the Latin translation preserved in the Vulgate. And so we have many ancient witnesses to the text as well that we, we can check when we're making our modern versions. Yeah. Um, but, but for the Hebrew manuscript tradition itself, it's relatively small up until, up until the, the codices of the 10th and 11th centuries. For the New Testament, we have kind of the opposite. We have many, 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 many manuscripts, um, most of them from the Byzantine period, so not, not from the first couple centuries of Christianity, though we have some um, from the second century onwards, um, but we have into the thousands of manuscripts. Wow. Um, now, it's important to know that when we say that, it doesn't mean all of them are full Bibles. Some sure. of them are so small, they have just a couple words. Sure. Um, but through this huge tradition and this huge uh, chain of transmission where we can trace places and trace families of manuscripts sometime and see see the spread plus the ancient versions so all of the the translations into latin and syriac and armenian and ethiopian ethiopic um, plus all of the quotes in the church fathers of of the old and new testament um, all of those together mean that we have no shortage of witnesses to what right. the New Testament said in the early centuries. Um, and the discipline of textual criticism, uh, which is a, a scholarly expertise that some people have, um, is in looking at this, this vast textual witness and discerning which variants, which readings most accurately reflect either the original or the initial text, the text that either the author wrote or the text that, they, that was published and sent out and is at the head of all of the other copying. So, um, and and we can be certain, and I'm I'm entirely confident that if you have a New Testament, or I mean, if you have a Bible in your hands, um, the 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 original or initial reading is on the page. It might be in the footnote sometimes. It might genuinely be in the footnote. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. And and I I haven't seen anything to cause me to question that. Um. And in addition, having this trust in the providence of God, I'm I'm relatively confident in that. So that's a that's a lot of <laughs> of words and information but if uh so my teenage son comes to me and said dad this bible that you talk about um you know there's so much in our world that i just i just don't trust what 
what's the short answer? What could a father say to a teenage son about why he can trust the Bible without knowing all of that? I mean, what would you say would be a layman's answer to that? And I don't mean to to confuse no. or press the thing, but I, I just, um, what's what would you say to that? So for why can I trust the Bible as, as a personal question, I'd have, I think, four very short answers. Yeah. One is the person and work of Christ himself. This is a theological answer, um, but if Christ is raised from the dead, it's all true, and that's what matters. Uh, second, um, the way that the early church tried arguing um, the the reliability, the, the personal reliability right. of the scriptures um, is fulfillment of prophecies, specifically around the person of Christ again. So seeing kind of how, how the old comes about in the new. Third, this is in terms of how it was written. So on a more historical level, why can I trust how it was written? If we look into the the details that are mentioned, and, and here my knowledge is mostly about the New Testament, but, but I believe this is true for the Old Testament as well. Um, if we look into the details of history, the details of geography, the details of everything that is mentioned, it, it checks out with what we know. Yeah. Um, and then fourth, in terms of how it got to us, how do we know it's reliable truly? Um, we have the short answer is just we have enough manuscripts to know that we, we know the ways it changed and didn't, and we know what the options are, and we can check because of all of them what is the most accurate reading. Yeah. So there's. I hope that helps. Yeah, <laughs> actually, and we're going to put that in the notes, guys, because there are plenty of ways for you to affirm the reliability of God's word. And I would, I would, I would jump onto what Josh McDowell in the last book uh, or the last chapter of uh, More Than a Carpenter, he talks about if you've got a personal story of salvation about how this book transformed and changed your life because it brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, then that's a, that's something that no one can take away is your personal faith story and how the Bible has uh, it changed your life, and the and the word, the truth there has has had an impact on your life, and um, so yeah, all of those things tie together. And again, I would just say this is where a a, a trip to the museum, uh, diving into some uh, books and some literature. We're going to talk about that uh, in just a few moments, but getting guys, if this is something that you're wrestling with on a personal level, or it's something that one of your children or someone that you know is asking about. There is help to answer these questions so that you can become more informed, more confident, more comfortable in answering the questions so that you can give uh, an answer for the faith that you have in Christ and in this word. So what would you list? I, I, I love more than a carpenter. I think it's an excellent resource. It's an easy read for guys um, from Josh McDowell. But what's, what are a couple of other resources that you would recommend, Daniel, to, uh, to guys? Right. So here I'm going to speak to what I know, which is the New Testament. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm actually going to refer, uh, refer to books written by friends of mine. Sure. Um, if you're interested about kind of the, the details of the Gospels, can, can I trust uh, that what I'm told about Jesus is accurate? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say the book is called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. So Can We tr Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams? And if your question is, how do I how do I know things about how the Bible made it to me, how the New Testament specifically made it to me, the tradition, yeah, uh, the, the the text tradition. Um, so this is a longer title, but myths 
and mistakes in New Testament textual criticism. It sounds scholarly, but it's written for, for a general audience, um, written by Peter Gurry, or edited by rather, Peter Gurry and Elijah Hickson. Um, and it, I, it, it's a phenomenal take through what, what is the, the manuscript tradition of the New Testament? What, what can we actually say about how many copies there are? What can we say about the type of variation there is? What can we say about all of the, the unique feature of it? Uh, and it also does a good job of dispelling kind of well-meaning but inaccurate things that some apologists have said trying to, trying to defend the, the tradition of the New Testament translation. Right. Because we don't need to make things up for it to be good. And so it's good to, to kind of dispel some of those things too. That's an interesting statement. We don't need to make things up for the story to be good. It is a fantastic and fascinating story of God's Word, how it came into existence, how it's been preserved, and the impact that it has had on our culture. And again, I would say, man, those things are presented just so well at the Museum of the Bible. Um, I didn't have this question on our list, but I want to ask you this. Pastors and leaders sometimes, so I'm going to put you on the spot, be ready. Pastors okay. and leaders sometimes have a tendency, and, and I do this myself because I teach in our church, um, we have a tendency to read the Bible and look for how are we going to teach a truth to someone else. And I can imagine as a scholar, there are times when you read the Bible and you're thinking about it as, a PhD student or candidate or a teacher of Greek, and you may, you may be reading it from a scholarly perspective. How do you place yourself in the place of one who is being informed and transformed? And how, how do you make sure that the Bible continues to influence your life personally and not just on a scholarly level? That's a very good question. Um, the, the first answer and, and really the, the best I can give is prayer. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that it, it's incredibly easy for me to kind of go on that scholarly autopilot. Sure. And, and when I read, begin looking for all the little details and, and trying to figure out what are these, um, but knowing that that's not all that there is and knowing that my growth and my spiritual health are not a thing that... I can argue myself too, um, but that they are things that God grants and that he often grants through his word as a means of grace. Yeah. And so praying that that happened. Uh, and then also I, I know one thing that, that for, for me, because any biblical scholar and many seminary, seminary students can, can go to a church and not hear anything new on any Sunday in a year. Yeah. Um, but it, it's a constant reminder that the point isn't Am I hearing something new? It's am I being more obedient and trusting? Yeah. Um, and and really hammering home on myself that my ultimate duty before God isn't how many questions I answered and how many neat things I know, even neat things about the Bible that I know, but it's am I trusting? Am I loving and am I doing what I ought? Yeah, that's awesome. I, it, one of the things that comes to mind for me is um, Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so, um, man, what, what, is, what is the word calling me to deny? How is it changing me? How is it, 
How is it affecting my life? And um, so, guys, I would just say to those of you who are listening, I would encourage you get to know the Bible, read the Bible, learn the Bible, love the Bible um, and the Word of God and how it informs you and your life and your decision making and how it can transform your perspective on being a man, being a husband, being a father, being a a disciple of Jesus Christ and how it's going to inform your engagement of our world as a citizen. Uh, right now, as we're recording this, our our culture is addressing some really challenging issues regarding uh, racism. And so, my goodness, we need to be reading the Word and begging God to inform us and transform us to help us see things that we have not seen before about how to love others as Christ loved us and to have grace and mercy toward others. Um, and so, If I can add one thing to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce his name, um, he has a short work called On Christian Doctrine. Yeah. And in it, what, what he talks about is— the right way of interpreting scripture. And he, his main emphasis in a large part of it is that any interpretation of scripture that isn't directly in you leading to love mm. isn't rightly interpreting scripture. The, the point of reading and understanding and interpreting is for this love, love of God and love of neighbor, the, the two great commands. Yeah. Every act of reading, every act of interpretation can't stop at the pages and it can't stop at the head it has to stop in it has to end in what is the proper end of ourselves in loving god and loving others that's a great way for us to bring this to conclusion and um i think as as men not only we have to do that for ourselves but we need to be examples of that for the folks who are watching us for our wives if we're married for our children for others around us and so guys let the the word of god um move you to love, to love God and to love others. Thank you for that, Daniel. Daniel, thank you for your time today. Um, Glad to. So what's the website for the Museum of the Bible? And give us, uh, we're recording this on June 9th. um, So tell us an update very quickly about when we're expecting the museum to open again. Right. So the website is just museumofthebible.org. No spaces or anything else, just museumofthebible.org. It's kind of advertises what it is. Um, and in, in terms of updates, we are dependent upon the way that DC, Washington, D.C.'s phase opening is occurring. So if D.C. gets to phase two, which I think would be the end of the second full week of June, if everything goes well, right? Um, then we're able to partially reopen and welcome guests again. Um, and people can start coming in. Um, there will be some some capacity limits, but the museum is, uh, it's enormous. I've been working it for a year and I don't think I've (laughs) seen everything. Um, And so the the capacity limits, while we're gonna be entirely safe, we're gonna limit the amount of people in a given room in terms of actual admission. Odds are with the amount of people that are gonna be out and about right now isn't going to be a problem for you. Right, right. Awesome, well check out the museumofthebible.org plan a visit, become a member and a supporter and a partner with the museum. Um, Man, it is such a fantastic experience to go there. So I encourage you men to visit, take your families. I'm even, I've talked to Daniel a little bit about what would it look like for the Bible to set up a a specific family tour. They do a lot of things Mm. for homeschool kids and other groups, but what would it look like for a family tour specifically to be developed for for the museum? So Daniel, again, thank you for your time. Men, thank you for joining us. 
uh, go to our website and uh, rate the podcast. We'd love to have an honest five-star rating, to be quite honest with you. Share it with some friends, and uh, we will look forward to being back with you again next week to talk about how the noble man shares the Word of God. We're going to specifically, this is our Father's Day uh, episode next week, so we're going to talk about how the, the man of God shares the Word with his family specifically. So God bless you, men. Have a great day.